Can you spot it when someone isn't telling the truth? Today, two Ollie instructors who know something about discerning deception discuss how they read people. Both are seasoned courtroom lawyers where the whole truth should be the coin of the realm, but sometimes isn't. Laura Bloomquist learned to judge people's credibility as a prosecutor in the LA City Attorney's Office. Certainly I honed whatever skills I had doing jury trials. Over time, you certainly learn and see how people conduct themselves. And when they appear to be lying or appear not to be telling the truth, then kind of make your decisions on how to proceed after that. Trial lawyer Harry Schaffner sharpened his body watching eye in early life albeit in a less professional setting. I learned how to read people when I was a young kid playing poker against my friends at the age of 13. And you're a kid and you're trying to win money because it's important to you. And so you learn what are the tells and how do I tell if somebody's bluffing. Stay tuned for Pinocchio's Nose, reading people with the pros. Welcome to In Conversation, the Voices of OLLI. OLLI, O-L-L-I, is an acronym for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, located at and networked with the Palm Desert campus of California State, San Bernardino. Laura Bloomquist is a popular OLLI instructor. She facilitates courses in current affairs by encouraging classroom discussion. In addition to being a raconteur, Harry Schaffner has taught Ollie and university courses across a spectrum of genres, including lie detection. They began discussing whether the skill to accurately read people is learned by experience, or is it innate, wired into the human condition? I think a little of both. I think you have to have a sense of it and then kind of build on it with experience, if that makes any sense. When I was a first year law student and had not yet given up poker because it was, it was really a substantial source of my income and I was playing with professionals, there was an alcove in the law school library that had fun books. And one of the fun books on the shelf was a book with the title, How to Tell if Someone's Lying in Seven Steps. And I thought when I picked up the book that this was uh, alchemy. Uh, how could anyone uh, pull themselves out to know when somebody's telling the truth and to do it in a non-scientific way. And here was something that I thought was really non-scientific. How can you tell if somebody's lying? Picked the book up and thought it was just sophistry. Ended up spending my career doing it. (laughs) It's not sophistry at all. It works. Yeah, I think there's there's lots of different ways to tell if someone's lying. And, and it's, you know, there's nothing magical about it. We do it all the time. We listen to people and we think to ourselves, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then once you determine that that doesn't make any sense, then you're right there making a decision that someone is not telling you the truth. So I, I don't think that it's, it's magic. I do think that it can be honed. It's something that we all, you know, as humans intuitively do. And that is we listen to what people are saying. We listen to the, whether or not there's kind of internal inconsistencies in what they're saying. Let's say you're a wife and you come, up, you come upon your, your husband kissing someone in a car, right? And you ask him, what the heck's going on here? Now, you know what the heck's going on, right? But you're gonna ask him that. 
and he says nothing. I mean, does that, you know, does that say to you, well, he's telling the truth, nothing's really going on? You know, you've looked at the overall circumstances and made a determination based on common sense. I think that's where we start off with. So you've gotten to what I think is interesting, which is that some lies are the lies of not saying something. So in the example just given, when the husband doesn't answer the question by saying nothing when he's been seen embracing and kissing, his non-answer is all the answer you need. It's an absolute admission of a lie. In civil cases, we get to take uh, an interview, a deposition, which we swear someone in under oath. That deposition is then transcribed. Now comes the trial. You have the same witness asked, being asked the same question. If the witness gives a different answer, that is the type of inconsistency that has some legal meaning. Uh, we uh, have methods for what a jury would be instructed uh, if a witness has said something on a prior occasion, which is inconsistent with the sworn testimony in the courtroom. Well, uh, um, I spent 31 years as a prosecutor. And in, that, in the course of that time, I did 165 uh, jury trials. And we have the disadvantage. We don't know what he's going to say when he takes the stand. Uh, there are no civil depositions. We have no right to talk to the uh, defense witnesses unless they want to talk to us, which is not particularly common. So they put a witness on and we go cold. You know, all we have is looking at the facts of the case and listening to what we feel are usually internal inconsistencies in what's being said. But you have, um, you certainly have no idea um, with respect to the details. The old cliche about the devil is in the details, I think is really true. And that is, that's one of the ways of, of seriously and effectively cross-examining somebody. And that is by going into the details. Because what happens is that, that witnesses and, and defendants in particular have, have worked out what we what I call the big lie, you know, say I was with you, at, you know, on January 5th or whatever, but they haven't worked out the details. And then once, once you start examining on the details, it makes clear that what, what they're saying didn't happen or couldn't have happened um, or doesn't appear to have happened. So I would say that um, civil attorneys are in a much better position with being able to depose someone uh, but I think that uh, criminal attorneys, particularly prosecutors, are in a position of basically doing it um, off the top of their heads at the time, you know, at the time that uh, it's occurring. Um, we are hearing the defense at the same time the jury's hearing the defense. Like to go back to the the um, woman, the woman finding her husband. I mean, they're she saw with her own eyes what he was doing. There aren't many spins that one can put on that. So you can, he can get out of the car and tell you nothing's happening. He can get out of the car and say, she's just a friend, or he can get out of the car and say, you know, I don't know, this woman just jumped in my car. Um, you know, whatever you, whatever his, his um, lie is at, off the top of his head, 
but the circumstances are going to betray him. And I think that's, that's um, what you're going to really focus on. There are consistent ways that people respond truthfully. There's patterns of behavior and there's patterns of behavior where people respond untruthfully. And those patterns are not only with the words, but with the visuals that you get. How did they breathe? How did they sit? What did their eyes do? What did they do in their chair? Did they look at you? Did they look away? Did their eyes go up to the left? Uh, which is a constant tell, and we call them nystagmus. Um, did they um, uh, start down a sentence and stop and then backtrack? Uh, that's a, a common one. Uh, did, they, did they try to talk over something that they earlier said? Um, did, they, um, did they not finish something uh, that they were saying? What did they leave out? What did they say twice? Why are they saying it twice? When you put all these things into an experienced questioner who's been doing this for a very long time, that questioner is relying on prior experience with other people in which that questioner has been able to determine for themselves whether or not they've been told the truth or non-truth. And so the questioner becomes highly skilled at, um, at determining truth. This is not science, but the people who do this well really do it well. But again, it's, it's just a little more in depth than we do as regular humans. You're making, you know, you're making determinations, you're determining it by the circumstantial evidence. Like to go back to the, the woman finding her husband, she saw with her own eyes what he was doing. There aren't many spins that one can put on that. He can get out of the car and tell you nothing's happening. He can get out of the car and say, she's just a friend or he can get out of the car and say, you know, I don't know, this woman just jumped in my car. Um, you know, whatever you, whatever his, his um, lie is at, off the top of his head, but the circumstances are gonna betray him. I'll tell you my favorite story about it. In the civil law office, we had numbers of people who were coming in who sought to hire the office. So they'd have a clipboard where they'd give us their, uh, their identification information. At the bottom of that form, it said, please tell the truth. We are going to rely and rep make representations on what you tell us, and we need you to tell the truth. Uh, I pretty much stopped doing divorces, but a man came in to see me, uh, and he was a very nice looking man, about 42 years old, and he lived uh, in the town that I was sitting in, which is at the end of the commuter line in Chicago. You get on that train in the morning, that's an hour and five minutes, and it puts you in downtown Chicago. And he worked, uh, on, he worked downtown, so he was taking the train in and the train out. And he came in and he wanted, to, he wanted to start a divorce. Now, right away, the flag goes up. Men don't start divorces. Women do. Men don't start divorces unless they have another woman that they're going to be with. Then they might start a divorce. But they don't start a divorce over um, lifestyle issues. Um, uh, the man sat down and told me, that his um, wife was not a good homemaker. And sometimes when he got home, the meal wasn't ready and he found that the house wasn't clean and she was a day behind on the laundry. And I said, is there anything else? And he looked at me and he said, no, what could there be? And I said, you don't want to tell me about the lady you met on the train that you've been sitting next to as you ride in on the train in the morning and you and she take the same train back in the evening and get a cocktail in the uh, 
in, in the train station and ride back together. You've been doing that for some time. You don't want to tell me about her. Now, that was a chance <laughs> that I took. And he, um, he either uh, was going to call me a charlatan, uh, some kind of a nut, uh, or he was going to react differently. His reaction was um, very nervous. He suddenly got extremely nervous. Somewhere in the middle of his nervousness, he said, how do you know about this? And then he said, I'm, 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 I've got to be, I've got to think this over. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, and he left. And all that I, all that happened was that I had decided that if he wasn't going to be honest with me, he could, he could walk in my office and say, I met another woman and I want to divorce my wife. I would be, I would be amenable to that. But if you come into my office and tell me you want to divorce her because she's a bad homemaker when you're lying, because the reason is you met another woman, you're not my kind of person. So I don't want to, I don't want to represent you. That's what happened. I never saw him again. Happily. I think one of the interesting things for me is um, what makes a good liar? You know, why, why are some people um, good at what they do in the sense that they lie? Um, and other people are just, you know, immediately transparent. It's just so clear. That's a great question. You got an answer? You know, I think in part, yeah. I think for one thing, I think um, a good liar is pretty much a smart liar. And that is someone who is bright enough to um, kind of keep all their ducks in a row, understand what um, that, if they said that, you know, A, that that would be inconsistent with B. A, a good liar is somebody who uh, sticks pretty close to the facts because then they don't have to remember so much. So right. they, they're sticking pretty close to the facts. They just and they just hedged a few of them. So the general facts are, are pretty much the same. Well, Versus somebody who just conflates the whole thing. Well, what's interesting, and in, in if you, again, take it back to criminal law, um, most people, when they're telling a story, are stuck by the facts. Let's say that the defendant is arrested at the scene. Let's say it's a, a domestic violence case and he's arrested at the scene. Well, his alibi cannot include that he wasn't there. That, okay? So he is, he's stuck by those facts. Right. Um, and there are a whole series of those kinds of facts that are, you know, eminently provable that he has to conform his lie to, okay? And so, um, so now it, you know, okay, yeah, I was there, but um, I did it in self-defense or whatever, you know, whatever he, he comes up with. So, um, you know, the facts do in fact um, kind of direct what the, what the lie is. The easy guy, the guy that's easy to figure out is of course the guy that doesn't stick to the facts, who, who um, does not remember or does not incorporate, you know, things that are provable um, into his story. The conversation turned to picking jurors, a critical courtroom process called voir dire, meaning literally to see, to say in French, but typically understood to mean to speak the truth. I did voir dire, I taught voir dire, and um, it's a huge, huge part of a jury trial. I always start out with the idea that most most jurors want to sit on a jury. 
I mean, you say most jurors want to get out of jury duty. Yes, that's true. But, but that usually happens before they get there. So most people want to tell you what you want to hear. And so I would ask a various, various hypotheticals um, dealing with both and hope that those hypotheticals, the people, rather than just asking straight questions, straight questions, people know where you're going and they answer accordingly. Um, but uh, hypotheticals, people have to think and they have to, you know, they have to tell you basically what their reasoning is. Whenever I could, uh, and I, this is based on a lawyer named, by the name of Roy Black, who was from, from Florida, and I watched Roy Black trials. Uh, the judge has already told the veneermen, who are prospective jurors, that the defendant is um, presumed innocent. And so you get up there and, you ask, and you're asking four people at a time, and you, you get up there and you ask them a couple of innocuous questions. And then you just say to them in the most innocuous say, wait, do any of the four of you have an opinion at all about the guilt or innocence of the defendant? And they all sit there uh, and, and they don't wave their hand. They don't have an opinion. But you turn to the judge and you say, judge, I think that these four jurors didn't understand your initial uh, uh, premonitions to them, the initial instructions, because they should be saying that they have an opinion that the opinion is that the defendant is not guilty as they sit there. Everybody gets the aha moment by doing that. And every and it's, so it's a, man, it's a big teaching school. And what I learned was I really don't want to throw those people off. I want them to want to be on that jury because I, I agree with you, they want to be on the jury. I want them to be on, want to be on the jury because they now see I had the right to throw them off and I'm leaving them on, so they owe me. I think one of the interesting things for me is um, what makes a good liar? You know, why, why are some people um, good at what they do in the sense that they lie? Um, and other people are just, you know, immediately transparent. That's a great question. Did you get an answer? You know, I think in part, a good liar is pretty much a smart liar. And that is someone who is bright enough to kind of keep all their ducks in a row. Facial expressions, if, if you are a smart liar, then that's the first thing you're going to curb. I one time got called out by a judge. I was sitting in a, you know, sitting in a jury trial and the defendant was testifying and I was listening to him and I was like, oh my God, you're such a liar. And I rolled my eyes and kind of rolled my head evidently, unbeknownst to me. And I, the judge called me up and, and pointed out what I had just done because I had clearly done it in front of the jury. The micro expression is a, an absolute window into what the person is actually thinking. But women are much better at picking up on men, much of this nonverbal stuff than men are. My business was to train men to have the, the senses that women have. And I would stand up in front of groups of men and tell them all the time, I'm trying to make you as smart as your wife. You're gonna start looking at the shoes and the purse and the hair and the makeup. You're gonna start deciding things that your wife has been deciding. You're gonna learn from her because those are pieces of information you actually need. Laura Bloomquist, Harry Schaffner, 
retired attorneys, talented readers of people, and two of the many vibrant voices of Ollie. Whoever thought you could get any miles out of a couple of retired, washed-up lawyers? Jesus, no kidding. <laughs> hey, watch, watch We're it. We're tired. We're tired. Speak, speak for yourself. This has been In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Our thanks to Cal State San Bernardino in Palm Desert, along with communications study professor Lacey Kendall and her media students. This podcast was produced for Ollie by Lou Gorfing. And I am Dr. Arlette Poland.